All right. If you have your Bible, please turn over to Genesis chapter 34. If you don't have a Bible, you can find the passage in its entirety printed in the bulletin tonight. Um, before reading, uh, there probably needs to be some words of, maybe we could say warning. Uh, we could also say, instead of warning, maybe just information for you to keep in mind before we read. This is a very difficult chapter in the Bible. Uh, there are some chapters in the Bible that you read, and it's hard to see how it got in there in terms of what encouragement is there in it, what instruction really is there in it. Uh, and this is one of those head-scratchers like that. It's just a tragic event on top of a tragic event on top of another tragic event. Basically, three tragedies piled up onto one. And it doesn't really resolve itself within the passage. It kind of leaves it hanging. But uh, it is a very important part of Jacob's life and uh, one that begins to transition us from thinking about Jacob to thinking about his sons. All right? And I think it'll give us an opportunity to talk about some pretty serious but important matters tonight as well. So let me read it and you'll see what I'm talking about. This is the word of the Lord. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamar spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city, 
and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them, let, let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us and become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys... And whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister as a prostitute? Well, it begins badly, it ends badly, and just about everything in between is bad. Do you agree? Why are things like this, why are stories like this in the Bible? Let's just start there. Why include this? It is. It's sad to say that it is, but it is, isn't it? These experiences are not uh, unique to this time and place. They happen in our time. Um, In fact, it's worth noting that um, according to recent statistics, uh, one out of every six American women And one out of every 33 American men are sometime in their life sexually assaulted. That's a sad statistic to report. And yet it is a reality of the world that we live in and very much something the Bible doesn't shy away from because of it. Uh, What else? Why is it here? He did. Yeah, why do you think that might be? Mm-hmm. How does this help a fallen people, Mark? How would this help a fallen people? The story like this. Right. It's showing us our sin, right, as well as theirs. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Very important. Yes. It's revealing the depths of depravity. There are some parts of the Bible that are written in order to show uh, just how bad things can get were it to be left to get that way, right? Uh, It makes us thankful for the grace of God which restrains um, most parts of the world from becoming as bad as it could get, right? 
Because if God removed all his gracious restraints, it would be a very horrible place that we live. Far worse than it even is. That's important. Jan. That's right. Yes, it exposes our lack of proper handling of things. Uh, particularly, I like what you said, wisdom. Which wisdom in the Bible has to do with taking God's laws and applying them to complicated circumstances. Uh, it's one thing to know the laws. It's another thing to apply the laws to a variety of situations. Uh, application requires wisdom. Uh, wisdom isn't always exactly black and white. Sometimes it's a little bit grayish. We have a very hard time with that a lot of times. And so did they. This is a call to wisdom as well. All those are beautiful answers. I think they hit the nail right on the head. Uh, if I were going to walk you through this, which I am in fact going to do tonight, I would say that it helps us understand that we need to look beyond ourselves and beyond the human race for hope in the face of injustice. Okay? That would be a kind of a banner. If you want perfect justice, look up. But the looking up to God and his perfect justice ought to actually inform the wisdom with which we pursue imperfect, but yet we should be pursuing justice here below in situations of this nature. All right? So if you look at your bulletin, I want to try to make that point to you by talking about the story in three parts. We're just going to go in order like we normally do. Um, verses 1 to 12, we see a road to compromise, which is, is kind of, a, it doesn't explain why this happens to Dinah, but it gives you some information about why it did so that you can understand uh, this tragedy better. Uh, and then we're going to look at verses 13 to 31, the awful way that everybody in the story tries to handle it once it happens and why it's so awful. And then lastly, in verses 30 to 31, we want to try to see a little bit about where this story is pointing. Uh, I think this story is pointing beyond itself, which makes it redemptive, which makes it hopeful in the end. Okay, So let's start with the road to compromise there at the beginning. Um, a horrible thing happens to Dinah. All right? Let, we just got to get that out there. Uh, Dinah goes, it says, to see the women of the land. Uh, we're not told why she does, uh, although the way it says it there in verse 1 makes it pretty clear that this is not something she did routinely. Uh, the, the, I don't want to get too caught in the weeds of grammar, but the, the verb tense it uses is a verb tense in Hebrew that describes when you do something occasionally, when you just do something you know, that you don't normally do. She went, it's almost like once upon a time she went and visited the women of the land. Like this was the first time she had done that. And while she was there, it wasn't the women of the land that she was encountered by, but it was the chief young man in the whole town. Uh, he's referred to as the prince of the land. Uh, later, he's referred to as the most honored of all his father's house. He is the son of the ruler of Shechem. Hamor is the name of the ruler. Shechem is the name of the prince of Shechem. In case that's confusing to you, both the city and the boy's name is Shechem. Um, Shechem humiliates. I mean, the, the words that are used here, you can't mince them. Uh, we, we should say them with full voice. 
he saw her, he seized her, which of course is a violent word. He lay with her, which we know what that euphemism refers to, and he humiliated her. Later, verse 5, Jacob knew that he had defiled his daughter. Later, the brothers describe it as they treated her like a prostitute. None of these descriptions are, are, uh, are flowering up the situation. All of them are extremely honest and blunt about what happened, right? It was wrong. Um, verse 7, it ought not to be done which is a beautiful verse, actually, in this whole passage. If you're going to look for a highlight or a bright spot, it's verse 7. Uh, he did an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Dinah, for such a thing ought not to be done. This was assault, this was rape, this was against her will, this was humiliating and dishonoring. Now, were there any things that had been happening that put Dinah at risk prior to this happening. I think this is important, and most all the commentators in this passage point out that the answer is yes. Now, we're not saying here that Jacob is to blame or that anybody else is to blame except Shechem. Shechem is the one who did the bad thing. However, and certainly Dinah is not being blamed, but there are things that Jacob has done leading up to this to put his family in dangerous situations in the land. Let me try to explain. If you look back in the end of chapter 33, uh, Jacob is supposed to go into the land and reach a place called Bethel. Do y'all remember Bethel? What happened at Bethel? Real important thing in Jacob's life. Yep, stairway to heaven. His dream that he dreamed on the way out of the land the first time when he was going to Laban, he saw a dream with a, a heaven opened and a ladder going from heaven to earth and angels going up and down. We remember that story. That was Bethel. Jacob had named the place. Bethel means the house of God. God wanted him to go to Bethel. In fact, after this whole terrible scene happens at the beginning of chapter 35, God reiterates, Jacob, arise and go to Bethel. And live there. That's where I want you to live. But we don't see Jacob doing that at the end of chapter 33. Instead, Jacob builds a house uh, across the river in a place called Succoth. And then when he crosses the river Jordan into the promised land, he comes, it says, to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. And he camped before the city and took a hundred pieces of money to buy a piece of land right in front of the city and pitched his tent there. He didn't go to Bethel. He pitched his tent right in front of the mighty city Shechem. Why would that be significant to this story? Yep, but was not going where God told him to go. What else? Yeah, it's got to be that. In fact, you can hear everything Jacob says as the story unfolds to his sons. You're bringing trouble on me. You're making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. Well, what, is, what seems to be almost foremost in Jacob's mind at this point as he guides the decisions of his life? 
I don't want to be a wanderer anymore. I want to settle down. I want to have a place. I want to, I want to buy a place. I don't want to be a wanderer like my grandfather and like my father and like I was forced to be with Laban. Finally, I just want to have a place that's stable. God, can't I have you and have stability too? It's like he's almost trying to cut a deal with God. God, I'll go to the land, but I'm not going to go to Bethel because Bethel's in the middle of nowhere. The only thing that happened there was a dream. But Shechem, Shechem's got economic possibilities. Shechem's got business deals. And so I'll buy a piece. I won't go into the city and live. I'll stay on the outside before the city. But I'll be close enough to where me and my family can have direct sort of interaction with the people of them and them with us. Now, why would God be opposed to that arrangement? Not what he told him to do. Yes. Influence of idolatry and immorality, paganism. Um, the Hivites, the Perizzites, we know a lot about them. They are not worshipers of God. They are not even God-fearers, most of them. They have a very different moral compass. Uh, every single time, remember how Abraham treated them as he traveled around? He, he never settled before this reason. And every time he had to go into one of their cities, he lied about his wife because he knew how they were. He knew what their morality was like, especially in terms of sexuality. He knew what it was like. And so did Isaac. And Jacob honestly should have too. Except Jacob maybe wants to have his cake and eat it too. He wants to try to keep his family separate while having the benefits of not being separate. And what ends up happening in this story and actually in the several stories following this, I'm bringing this up because it's not just about this story. In the next several stories, there's a whole string of them, his family becomes way too enmeshed with the people of the land because of where Jacob has positioned them. In this case, it was Dinah being victimized. In the cases to come, it's going to be Jacob's sons actually becoming the victimizers. They're going to actually become the people who take on the same kinds of behaviors that they've seen modeled for them in the people of the land. What does this tell us? This tells us that even the seemingly smallest compromises, when they are compromises against what God has told us to do, can have extraordinary consequences in our lives. We may not think tiny compromise hurts anybody. We may not think it hurts us. And it might not in the short term, and it might not hurt directly us. But it will tend to hurt somebody when God's people aren't vigilant against the anti-God influences that are around them. This is important. The Bible talks about it not just in the Old Testament, but the New the point here is not racial difference, okay? God never told Israel to be separate because he had some kind of racial purity thing going on. It was religious. It was commitment to worship. It was commitment to morality. It was commitment to God that was at issue. And for God's people to be intermixed in, in, in a way that was more than just the most basic interaction, intermixed in a way of being yoked together with those who did not believe in God was going to be a compromise which was going to lead to a thousand compromises which was going to lead to deep, deep tragedy in the family. 
Even in the New Testament, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, I warned you. Let me read it to you, actually. Um, 1 Corinthians 5. Just, just so that you know, this is not just an Old Testament sort of in the land thing for Israel, but this is for all believers. Uh, where he says in chapter 5, 1 Corinthians, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world, but I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother. This is the key part. Who bears the name brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolatry or reviling or drunkenness or swindling, not even to eat with such one. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. The idea here is, unless you're going to completely take a rocket ship and go to Mars, you're not going to be able to completely separate yourself from immorality in the world. But as Christians, you should never be in a brotherly or a married together type relationship with someone who does not share the fear of the Lord. You should not. You should not be entangled with them. Instead, you should purge them from your midst. And those are strong words. We don't think this way very often, but Paul there feels perfectly free to directly quote from the Bible. He's quoting actually from Deuteronomy and Leviticus to the New Testament church saying, Purge the evil person from among you. Be different. Be different. Do not let entanglements with the ways of this world and the ways of unbelief lead you into compromise when it comes to what God is calling you to do. When you do that, it will have an effect on the church and on your family. Um, in the next chapter, Paul goes on to say, a little yeast leavens the whole lump. Even just a little compromise will make the whole thing compromise. And so most commentators on Genesis 34, I think, very helpfully point this out. In some ways, Jacob has already made decisions that put his family members at risk. Dinah's trip into the city to meet with some of the women may have been for social purposes. It may have been for business purposes. It may have been her parents sent her. We don't know exactly why she had to go in there to meet with the women. But the fact that they were living so close to them and trying to be in such deep interconnection with them shows why, as she walked there, she fell prey to Shechem's eyes. Yep. Go ahead, Alex. Um, I'm not sure about that because we see many examples in Genesis of that happening, like uh, Rachel, for example. Uh, who goes out to water the animals by herself, and Jacob meets her there. And that may have been a later, um, later than this thing that developed within the Bible times, but I, I don't, I'm not sure that in, in the Genesis period that was the code. You know, That's a good question, though. Yeah. Any other thoughts about the first point? It's strong, strong... Uh, Stuff here tonight. Yes, sir. I just think it has a lot of application to us. Even if you just look at what you pointed out about Jacob when he's smaller, he doesn't have a lot of people. His family isn't as big, or his flocks aren't as big. Yeah. He doesn't fear right. of the other nations and lies. Yes. He's being sent out here, and you know, he's trying to keep himself separate, but he's, just, he's not even doing that right. 
He's bigger, yeah. Yeah. Yes. I think it's so insightful. Yeah, it's so insightful. And uh, that's probably true that um, prosperity has its own particular temptations and poverty has its own particular temptations. Usually the temptations of prosperity are blending in and accommodating to every whim of the culture because you are, in a sense, at the pinnacle of the culture. And so you want to kind of fit in with it. And uh, Jacob is trying to do that. He's trying to make a place for himself in the land where he doesn't have to keep moving around in a tent all the time. Which makes sense. I mean, you can kind of understand his desire. And yet, because he's not doing what God's told him to do, he puts his whole family at risk. And like I said, it's, it's Dinah, but it's also later going to be Judah. It's going to be a woman named Tamar. It's going to be Simeon. It's going to be Reuben. And finally, it's going to be his dear, dear baby Joseph that are going to be put at tremendous risk because he has opened his family up to the influence of the pagan world around him. Important. Second thing, uh, if you'll look at it with me. Uh, After this outrageous thing happens to Dinah, which is described as outrageous and a thing not to be done, in verses 13 to 31, uh, the boys, the sons of Jacob and Jacob himself, attempt to rectify it. They attempt to set it right. Now, we've got to talk about each one of them in turn because I believe what the sons do and what Jacob does represents two common responses to injustice of any kind, both of which are ultimately a failure. So first of all, look at Jacob's sons. You can start in verse 13. What do Jacob's sons do to retaliate for Dinah's um, tragedy? They have a scheme, and that scheme is based on deceit, right? Uh, What kind of deceit do they use? It's a really particular kind of deceit that is ugly. What is it? Yeah, they have no intention of delivering this. Absolutely none. And they promise it on the basis of what? Religious rituals, religious conversion even. They're like, okay, yeah, we'll give you our daughter if you join the church and get baptized. You know, for them it was get circumcised and join us, be like us and and worship with us, and yeah, we'll do this. Knowing all along that the circumcision uh, was going to weaken them for a time and give them the perfect opportunity to pounce, which is exactly how it plays out. Uh, Shechem who, for all intents and purposes, reads to me like a sociopath in this story. I don't know if you read it the same way, but, you know, my man is very so full of himself that he thinks that this girl Dinah ought to fall in love with him at this point, as he has so supposedly fallen in love with her. He makes a demand of his father to get her for me as my wife. And then he goes out to his whole city and says, hey, guys, just for me so I can get this girl that I humiliated, why don't you all get circumcised? I mean, this guy is something else, right? He's a piece of work, as we might say. But yet, he's got a lot of power. He was honored. His his father was respected, and so everybody actually did it. 
And it says, verse 25, on the third day when they were still sore, Simeon and Levi lead the charge, and what do they do? List it out. Murder. Plunder. Took all the wives and children. Took all the goods. Who did they kill? Every single one in the whole town, the whole city. Okay. What about Jacob? Verse 30. How does he respond? You could also look back at verse 5 to get a little indication of Jacob's response. Verse 5 said, He held his peace until his sons came. In verse 30, You have made me a stink to the land. They will come and destroy us now. How is Jacob trying to respond to the injustice? Okay, look what you did. What else? Takes no responsibility. But even more than that, it's it's like more than not taking responsibility, he's almost trying to get it to go away by ignoring it, right? It's almost like his, his, his reasoning with his sons is, if you just don't make a big deal about it, it'll go away. Now, of course that's not true. We all know that's not true. But I want you to notice there's a tiny bit of truth in each of the approaches. What's the tiny bit of truth in the son's approach? Well, I think it's expressed in verse 31. That's a truth for you. Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Truth? And they're right. Uh, When things are done like this, something must be done in response. Justice is real. And justice is necessary, not just with God, but also in this world. They were right to want justice. Where did they go wrong, though? Well, they got more than justice. Uh, They got so much justice that it became injustice. The blood flowed endlessly. And on top of it all, they're punishing a city for treating their sister like a prostitute, and yet they're stealing all the wives. A classic case of two wrongs don't make a right. Jacob, what's the little truth in his approach? When he says, they shall attack me and I shall be destroyed. There's a good point there, isn't there? If we always take the approach of Jacob's sons against injustice and just go out and kill them all and let God sort them out, then guess where that leaves us? If the approach to injustice in the world is just wipe all the unjust people out, where does that leave me? Possibly wiped out, right? Jacob actually has a point here. We can't go around just killing folks in retaliation because then they might turn around and kill us when we do something that they don't like. And so both of them are partly right, but both of them are oh so wrong. And why are they oh so wrong? Vengeance is God's. Okay, keep going. 
Sin you pay for your sin. That's right. Yep. They broke those standards of justice for sure. They don't seek God. Ever. Yep. Nobody's praying in this story, right? Which is remarkable. No one stops and says, oh, Lord, help us. And I think also, sadly, if we are honest, was Dinah served well? Was Dinah properly defended? I don't think so. From the very first verse, this chapter just screams out, someone needs to defend Dinah. And yet, everybody who's trying to do so fails at doing so. And by the time you get to the end of the chapter, it's like you've almost forgotten about Dinah because of all the mess everybody else has created trying to help her. It's a mess. Which I think leads us to that last thing, which is the thing that I find most hopeful about this story. And you can see hints of it throughout. I think in particular the hints are found there in the last two verses, but you can find them scattered throughout. Here's a little, little thing that I think about a lot when I read stories about this in the Bible. Stories that are all dark, no light. Sometimes they're being told so that against the darkness we can see the silhouette of God. Sometimes when there's a gap in the human ability in the story, so galactically messed up, that gap is just big enough for God to fill. And so that as you're reading it and you're beginning to think something more has to be done, this cannot be the right solution. Surely this is not all the Bible has to offer us. As you think those things, as you read this, you ought to be filling it with, oh, but God. Oh, but Christ. Oh, but think about who he is. You see, both of those concerns, the, the, the brothers have a concern for justice. Should they treat our sister like a prostitute? Something has to be done. Jacob has a concern for mercy. Because if they get axed, well, I might get axed too. If everybody gets justice, then nobody lives. Well, what you have in God as we read in Psalm 85 earlier, is a place where steadfast love and faithfulness kiss each other, where justice and mercy meet in perfect harmony in the character of God and in the way God acts in our case. For example, the cross. Did God lessen his uh, desire for and execution of justice against human evil at the cross. Was the cross a big shrug? Definitely not. The cross was a firm statement on behalf of those who've been sinned against and a firm statement against all of us who have sinned. The cross says we deserve hell. Every sin does. All destroyed. Shechem all over again. 
And yet, at the cross, did God in any way minimize his heart for mercy towards offenders and offended people? No. Because at the cross, you had God's Son not only satisfying the justice of God, but also pouring out from his heart, as from a fountain, the eternal love of God that had been set on them. Not based on anything they had done or not done, but simply based on God's gracious choice to show mercy. And so as we fill in that gap, reading this story, as we try to make out the silhouette of God against the darkness of the human failure, I think it ought to open up for us not only hope uh, when we see injustice in our world, but I think it actually ought to open us a new way of wisdom, which is what Jan mentioned, a new way of wisdom for how we can handle things like this when they happen on our watch better than they do. Because, make no mistake about it, the things that happen here didn't stay in Genesis. We've already talked about that. They happen today. Nobody wants anything like this to happen in their family. Nobody wants anything like this to happen in their church. Nobody wants anything to happen like this in their school, in their neighborhood, and yet, alas, it does. What do you do? How, as a Christian, do we respond? That's an important question. Have you ever heard uh, the name Rachel Den Hollander? Rachel Den Hollander was a United States gymnast. She, she was a gymnast for the U.S. gymnastics team. She was one of the young girls abused by Larry Nasser, the doctor of the team. She was actually the first woman to publicly confront him and publicly you know, go to the law about what he had done. She also happens to be an extremely strong Christian. She wrote a book uh, called uh, What a Girl is Worth, or What's a Girl Worth, which I would encourage you to read, where she takes the ideas of the cross and of the gospel, and she applies them to the issue of injustice and abuse. And I want to read you just a little piece of it. This is her speaking about the tension within her as someone who was abused in such a horrible way. She had this tension between, should I, should I still believe in God or not? Um, does the Bible really help me with my situation? Uh, I've seen the church mishandle these things so many times. I mean, what, how am I to make sense of this? And she says the more she thought about it, the more she realized, quote, if truth's parameters were established by people alone, then I actually had no way to define evil. Or any way to define justice for that matter. Removing God didn't fix the problem of evil. It actually made it worse. As a Christian, she says, I still have a lot of questions about what happened to me and God's involvement. I still have a lot of questions about how it might be rectified in this world or the next. But I have a whole lot more answers with God than I ever would have had without him. She goes on in another article, which she wrote with her husband, who is a PhD um, in in the area of justice. Uh, They wrote together an article called Justice, the Foundation of a Christian Approach to Abuse. Another wonderful thing. And she says there are four ways that the cross helped her 
make sense of the injustice that happened in her life. First of all, it upheld the victim's sense of injustice and desire for vindication. Because, of course, at the cross, God was letting out his justice in full force. Two, it showed that God was committed to forgiveness and justice at the same time, which is a marvel. Three, it inverted the power dynamics that are often at play in oppression and abuse, which we see in this story very well. You've got Shechem, the prince of the land, and Dinah, who no one knows her name until now. And yet God, the most powerful one in the universe, takes the lowest place at the cross not to take advantage of someone, but to serve them, to serve the weak. And then she says, lastly, the cross makes healed relationships possible because I see at the cross what God is doing with me. He's pursuing both justice and forgiveness at the same time. And I believe in this world, wisdom dictates that we also try to pursue those things as much as we can at the same time. Now imagine, y'all, imagine if those insights that Miss Den, Ho- Den Hollander has, imagine if those had been known fully and understood better by Jacob and his sons. Imagine if they had prayed. Imagine if they had consulted God. Imagine if they had tried to apply his mercy and forgiveness to the situation. Imagine if they had pursued actual justice and not just mob violence. And I'll leave you with the work of trying to rewrite, kind of rewrite the story. How would they have handled it, do you think? Think about that. Give it some thought. Give it some prayer. Because something like this, although we might not want to read it in the Bible, and it might be something we don't even want to think about, is nevertheless something that is a real issue in the world and that we as Christians are going to have to, at some point in our lives, face and seek to do something just and merciful and wise by the grace of God with. Amen? All right.